ಓಂಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಕಾರಣ ತಂ ನಮ್ಯಹಂ we are virtually at the end of the text aparoksha anubhuti no one uh, swami once said to me don't ever say i have read the gita say i am reading the gita so that holds true for these texts also so don't say i have finished uh-huh. that i am reading it and studying it uh, it's a continuing process but this one cycle definitely we are towards the end so we were on verse 143 ebhirangai samayukto ebhirangai samayukto ಕಿಂಚಿತ್ಪಕ್ವಕಷಾಯಿತ್ಪಕ್ವಕಷಾಯಟಯೋಗೇನ ಸಂಯುತಯೋಗೇನ ಸಂಯುತ we the last subject main subject which was discussed the last but one actually uh, was the 15 steps or 15 practices of vedantic meditation so he says all of them together uh, we have described in these 15 steps all together we have described the path known as raja yoga this has to be supplemented by what is called hatha yoga for those whose minds are not yet purified who do not have the requisite qualifications yet hatha yoga is necessary now one has to be careful what does he mean by raja yoga and what he means by hatha yoga what he means is uh, a peculiar use of these terms quite different from what we understand them to be so advaita vedanta the path of knowledge and the 15 practices of meditation taken together what we studied this whole text this is what shankaracharya is calling raja yoga not to be confused with easily confused not to be confused with patanjali's yoga sutras which swami vivekananda translated and commented in english here in new york in the vedanta society of new york the book raja yoga was first published here i was just reading the lady who took down those notes she said that one of one of the sutras would be read out swami vivekananda would sit in meditation in meditation he would come across the commentary which he wanted to say and she said i always had to remain absolutely silent and with the pen dipped in ink in those days with the pen dipped in ink said so to remain like that absolutely quiet and the moment he would open his eyes and burst forth with eloquent exposition of the sutras that was raja yoga commentary on the patanjali yoga sutras very different from what was done here only the term is same that's why don't get confused what 
Shankaracharya means by Raja Yoga here is Advaita Vedanta, the path of knowledge, Jnana Yoga. What Swamiji meant by Raja Yoga in the Patan- was the commentary on the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. All right. Now, another term, again easily misunderstood, Hatha Yoga. What Shankaracharya here means by Hatha Yoga is this. Do you recall when we studied the 15 steps of Vedantic meditation, the different practices? Do you recall he used yogic terms, asana, which literally means sitting. But of course Shankaracharya, for, for him all of them meant Brahman. Breathing, pranayama, which means breathe, breath control. But for Shankaracharya it meant of course Brahman. Um, pratyahara, withdrawal of the senses. And so many things. 15 terms he used, all of them taken from yoga. Those are taken from, mostly from Patanjali Yoga and from other disciplines, associated disciplines of yoga. That one, the lower form of yoga, the more physical form, that is what he's calling Hatha Yoga. And if you look at the way he taught at that time, it seemed he was sort of playing down um, Hatha Yoga. And do you remember when he says, breathing, Hatha Yoga consists of pranayama, breathing in, holding the breath, letting go of the breath. And Shankaracharya defined it uh, as, when you let go of the breath, think that, uh, focus on the fact that the world is an appearance. When you breathe in, focus on the fact that, I am Brahman. You say, fact, Swami, where do those facts come from? The whole text, what we have been doing all year long. So, and when you, the breath is held, Steady yourself in the awareness that I am Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi. That is real pranayama. And Shankaracharya, do you remember, he was a little mischievous. He said, uh, humorous. The other one is torture of the nose, grana pedaram. And like that, another place when he says posture of the body, to keep the spine erect, the waist and the chest and the neck and the head in one uh, in alignment. That is called posture of the body. And uh, Shankaracharya said, establishment in Brahman, that is uh, real posture of the body, not sitting erect like a, like a uh, dried up tree. <laughs> now, does it mean that he is denigrating the fact practices of uh, what he calls Hatha Yoga, Patanjali Yoga and the other physical yogas? No, he is not denigrating it. He is saying, ultimately you must come here for knowledge, for realization, for enlightenment. But then what about those? Are they useless? He says, absolutely not. He says, for kinchit pakva kashayanam, for those whose minds are partially purified. The impurities, lust and greed and anger and pride and, uh, and jealousy, those which have not been completely eliminated from the mind, those who have not yet got the fourfold qualifications, of Vedanta, Vivek, Vairagya and all of that, for them those practices are absolutely necessary. So here at the end of, very end of the book, he reconciles with the, the lower yoga, which he calls Hatha Yoga. In fact, I would say practically speaking, we need a good dose of that. Before being steady in Brahman, one must first sit steadily. People are so restless, sit steadily. Before being the silence of Brahman, 
before the silence, this Brahman, which is the silence underlying speech and lack of speech, first practice physical silence, talking too much. He says, Swami, we are quiet, you are the one talking. <laughs> <laughs> so, all of the practices of Hatha Yoga, sitting steadily, control of speech, uh, control of the sense organs, withdrawing the mind from worldly thinking, focusing the mind, dharana, dhyana, samadhi, focus, meditation and then samadhi, all of them are really, really useful. And uh, practically, I think we need m more of that first. Then, um, then only the others become effective. Suppose I don't do that, suppose I go straight here. You are welcome to go straight to the 15 Advaitic practices. They are very good. But you might find it a difficult job. It's like, there is something that you can cleanse with a, with a fine surgical scalpel. And there is something that you need a shovel. Now if you use the surgical instrument to clean mud, you might be able to do it. It will take an enormous amount of time, a lot of unnecessary effort, and you might damage the instrument in the process. Uh, so what instrument is required for what purpose? Bhagavad Gita puts it very clearly. Aru Ruksho Munir Yogam Karma Karanam Ichyate. Yoga Arudasya Tasyeva Shamah Karanam Ichyate. Krishna says clearly that those who are climbing on the ladder of yoga, for them Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, rituals, the meditative practices, the physical postures and all of that are good. For those who have climbed pretty high, for them knowledge and also he says meditation. Um, control of the mind and in, inward practices, the higher, more subtle practices are effective. I remember one Swami, a very senior Swami of our order, a very dynamic, um, he, he has led many big ashramas, good administrator, uh, done a lot of work. Once he told me, he has a lot of focus on work, so once he told me why, he said, it is precisely because we are average, ordinary, mediocre seekers. He says, for ordinary seekers like us, we need the external struggle. Advanced yogis can deal with the problems of the mind at the level of the mind. Anger, resentment, greed, restlessness, um, um, lust, all of them when they come up, an advanced yogi can see it at the seed farm and nip it in the bud. If we try to do that, what happens is that we just sit quietly. How do we deal with it? We, we require an external um, challenge. Best challenge is dealing with difficult people. You keep your mind cool in difficult circumstances. Dealing with difficult people, with health problems, financial problems, working under pressure, standing up to ethical challenges. All of the challenges that one faces in day-to-day -day life, they are very useful for, for spiritual development. And, so, and part of that, of course, is the uh, Hatha Yoga practices, which are external, but really useful. <laughs> uh, who says we don't need external help? Swami Ashokananda would strongly recommend in, in 1950s, 60s in San Francisco Vedanta Society, Vedanta Society of Northern California. So he would recommend hard work. He would give a lot of work in the ashram for the devotees who would come. And uh, 
then he knew there was some resentment that why doesn't the Swami teach us advanced meditation techniques and so like this what we just learned 15 techniques he knew that so once he said I know what you are thinking you are thinking the Swami doesn't think I'm ready for these advanced techniques well I'll show the Swami and you will show me but not in the way you really think you will show me <laughs> you will show me that that I am right um, so he says for those whose minds are uh, partially purified who are not yet fully ready all the other external practices are also useful definitely useful so your japa mantra japa very powerful even from a Dadvaitic point of view extremely powerful preparation mantra japa meditation prayer singing puja sevak the karma yoga that you do all of them are really really useful they pay dividends so both are to be combined then in time no best to do it together and who knows when it will click you say if i do hatha yoga all the physical practices for 40 years and then i will come to the class no who knows what will happen after 40 years so come to class learn these things and let your mind dwell on all your practices both religious and secular as well as this advaitic teaching then the 144th verse Paripakvam mano yesham Paripakvam mano yesham Kevaloyam cha siddhidam Kevaloyam cha siddhidam Guru daivata bhaktanam Guru daivata bhaktanam Sarvesham sulabhobjavat Sarvesham sulabhobjavat very beautiful concluding verse. First of all, he clarifies something. So if both are necessary, the external yoga and the advanced non-dualistic meditation prescribed by Shankaracharya, both are necessary, then why did you make fun of the, the external ones? You should have said it at the very beginning. He says, the non-dualistic meditation prescribed by me, the 15 practices, they are sufficient by themselves to give you liberation. They will give you liberation. But only if you are ready. The others are necessary to get you ready. So if you say, are these enough to give me liberation? Straight answer is yes, the 15 practices are enough. But it depends on what stage you are in, what stage we are in. Somebody said, how do you go from here to, say, Los Angeles? You take the plane. And then to the airport, you take the car. So no, 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 tell me one. Both are necessary. You'll have a big problem driving from here to Los Angeles. It can be done. It's a long trip. And the plane, you need the car to go to the airport. Otherwise, the plane cannot take off. You can't take the plane then. So both are necessary. Uh, one as preparation and one as the culmination. Again, of course, remember, we are doing Advaita Vedanta. From Advaita Vedanta, obviously, they will put the Advaitic practices at the top. Uh, but it's, it is no, interesting to note that even in Advaita Vedanta, they do not dismiss with the need for the external practices. Then the last concluding line is so beautiful and touching. He says, but let me, in, I'll give you, I'll let you into a secret. A secret is this. 
You want to do all this very quickly? Yes, yes, we are all up for it. Javat means fast. Things become much faster, he says, Guru Daivata Bhaktanam. If you have love for God and devotion to your Guru. Those who have dedication, faith and devotion to God and Guru, Bhakti, Ishta Devata, to the chosen ideal, real love. Not just I'm doing philosophy, I'm love for God. And faith and devotion to the Guru. For them, all of this is easy and fast. Sulabho Jawat. Jawat fast, Sulabha easy. So the last two verses are important because the other practices, which have not been talked about here, what about the great amount of bhakti that we do? Look where we are sitting. The whole setting is of, of, a, of a bhakti setting. Temples, churches, mosques. It's a bhakti setting. Faith, and devotion. What's its relation to all of this? That's very good. Always recommended. Always welcome. Highly recommended. One. Second, what about the other yogic practices? Those are also useful for preparing the mind. So, the, in conclusion, Shankaracharya has mentioned these two. Now, I will quickly gi give you an outline of what we did over the last one year. Um, I think we are also joined live by an uh, internet audience also. So, they will also get the benefit of this. And um, afterwards, you can ask questions. So, let's go through the entire text. Don't worry, I'll not <laughs> go through it verse by verse, but give you an outline. First of all, the name, Aparoksha Anubhuti, a direct, intuitive realization of the Absolute. What is the nature of the realization? Aham Brahmasmi, I am the Absolute. Are you able to hear at the back? Are you able to hear at the back? Yes. yes. I am the Absolute, Aham Brahmasmi. That is the nature. Now, this realization is of a direct, intuitive nature. It's not um, something that you just read in the text and hear it and file it away as nice information. Not even getting a general idea, a good understanding, a grasp of what has been said. What I mean by intuitive realization is, you remember the story I sometimes tell of the ten friends who crossed the river and then they thought that one of them had drowned, they counted, they found only nine and a wise person pointed out that you are not counting yourself. The moment he realized, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine and I am the tenth. Now think of that person's mind. He was looking for the tenth. Because of his error, he couldn't find the tenth. The moment he finds the tenth, it's not information, it's a whole Paradigm shift in the mind of the person. Imagine making a mistake about a rope and thinking it's a snake. The moment you see, aha, it's a rope, not a snake. A shift. It's not quite somebody coming and telling you, it's a rope, not a snake. And you think, all right, that's interesting information. It's a rope, not a snake. No. When you actually see, right? Like the whales fall away. The scales drop from your eyes. There is a shift, a paradigm shift, distinct, like your world is turned upside down, like that, when you realize that. So that is the Aparoksha Anubhuti. This understanding 
deepens into that. So, aparokshanubhuti. The Sanskrit term also is interesting. One term is pratyaksha, that which is available to your senses. So, what you are seeing now is pratyaksha, sense knowledge. What you are hearing is sense knowledge, pratyaksha. Literally the word pratyaksha, that which is presented to your eyes. But not just eyes, eyes, ears, nose, touch, taste, that which is directly revealed to our senses, that is pratyaksha. Now we also know lots of things beyond the senses. We know it by studying, uh, we know it from science, we gather data and we understand many things about the cosmos of the world, of the very large galaxies and quasars, of the extremely tiny of microbes and even protons and uh, neutrons and so on. So all of that we don't see. But we know through knowledge, we, we gain it through study, um, through science. And if you, if you have another kind of knowledge based on faith, religious knowledge, that there is God, heaven, all of those beliefs, that's also a kind of knowledge. So all of those, that, uh, whatever is given by science and a different kind of understanding given by religion, all of that is called paroksha. Paroksha means beyond senses. Right now you cannot see it. So beyond our senses there is a world of knowledge. That also is knowledge. But why are we saying that? To distinguish those two, pratyaksha and paroksha, sense knowledge and beyond senses from aparoksha anubhuti. This is not sense knowledge. That I am Brahman, you cannot see it or hear it or smell it or touch it. And it's also not book knowledge. That I read about it, so I am Brahman. People keep asking, there's a chance of making a mistake that this jnana yoga is intellectual knowledge. Because intellectual knowledge is important in this. But that's not what we are talking about. When you say that the tenth person is there, that's intellectual knowledge. When that person realizes, oh, I am the tenth one. That shift which takes place in the mind. That is that aparokshanubhuti, direct knowledge. It's revealed to you. So that is what is meant by aparokshanubhuti. That's what we are aiming at. We must come to that direct, unmistakable, unshakable realization. I am Brahman. Now the first two are the prayer, the traditional prayer to God. And then first two verses. Then you have the preliminary qualifications for Vedanta. Verses 3 to 10. Verses 3 to 10 is a discussion of the Sadhan Chatushtai, the fourfold qualifications of a Vedantic student, entry conditions. Do you remember Viveka? What is Viveka? The discrimination between the real and the unreal, the eternal and the temporary. Then second, Vairagya, dispassion. That which I know to be temporary, fleeting, transient, I have dispassion for that. That which I know to be eternal, Brahman, God, whatever you call it, I want that. I want that realization. That is Vairagya. Then the sixfold disciplines. What are the disciplines? They call Shat Sampati, the sixfold treasure. So, what is the treasure for a seeker? Shama, quietude of mind, control of mind. Dhamma, control of the senses. Then, Uparati, withdrawal from engagement, too much external enjoyment, it's kind of moderation, stepping back. Then samadhana, concentrating the mind which has been so withdrawn. 
Then is there uh, titiksha, a spiritual fortitude, toughness. People often ask, why is it so difficult? I want to be a multimillionaire. Nobody really asks. They know it's difficult. And they may also grumble once in a while. But that doesn't stop them from putting forth all effort to be a multimillionaire. I want to be a Hollywood star. I've seen in, in, in uh, Hollywood. Young boys and girls come. They live in such, such tough circumstances. Hoping for that little tiny break which will catapult them into name and fame. How many of them get it? I don't know. And they also feel it's difficult. And they feel, but that doesn't stop them. So you have to want it badly. Titiksha is putting up with all sorts of troubles. Worldly problems, physical problems, all sorts of problems, health problems, all of them which will keep coming and going in the world, but I shall pursue my spiritual uh, seeking. Often spirituality is the first sacrifice. The first thing, when you're, when you're under pressure and in trouble, the first thing you give up is spirituality. It should be the other way around. The first thing you catch hold of is spirituality, when you are in trouble especially. Now, Titiksha is a toughness, a spiritual fortitude. And then Shraddha, a working faith in the teachings of the texts and the, and the teacher, that what they are saying is right. I don't get it yet, but let me persevere, I'll get it. Not blind faith, not a belief system, but a working faith, that uh, what the teacher and the texts are saying are true. And then the fourth of the fourfold qualification is mumukshutvam, an intense desire to be free. An intense desire to be free. Now, one thing you remember about it, which is not mentioned here, but I'll, I mentioned uh, an important inner secret about it. They are causally linked. One leads to the other. So viveka leads to vairagya, vairagya, viveka and vairagya together lead to the strengthening of the sixfold treasure. And when you have all of them, more and more, then the yearning for spiritual realization grows. So causality. If you find a deficiency in the effect, strengthen the cause. My, I don't have dispassion for the world. What do I do? Don't struggle with the world. Go back and strengthen Viveka. Discrimination. When you strengthen that, automatically dispassion for the transient will come. That's how it works. Then, number uh, the next topic is from verse 11 to 15, inquiry, vichara. Vichara, how will I get aparokshanubhuti? That enlightenment, that knowledge that I am Brahman, how will I get it? What is the method of Vedanta? The method is inquiry. Method is getting knowledge. How will you get knowledge? By inquiry. That inquiry, the process of inquiry, how do you inquire? It will be taught. So the process of inquiry is called vichara. Inquiry into what? Inquiry into the world. What is this world? Uh, inquiry into the nature of God, Ishwara. But most important of all, inquiry into self, Atma. Who am I? What am I? Inquiry into self. What is self and what is not self? Atma, Anatma. Self, not self. So these three inquiries, all of them will lead to the central truth, realization, I am Brahman. I am Brahman. Then the inquiry starts. So basically this book has two main teachings and those are the two main teachings of Vedanta, the two-step process. First, you must distinguish Atma from Anatma, Self from Not-Self. Why? 
Because the whole point is to know I am Brahman. Okay, why can't I know that directly? Because we have already have a wrong idea about what the self is. That has to be dissolved first. That has to be clarified first. What is the wrong idea? What is wrong in what I know? You have an idea about yourself which is at present a mixture of Atma and Anatma. At present what we think about ourselves. Before starting Vedanta, what we think about ourselves. This guy, this person here. It's not just a body. It's mixture of Atma and Atma. Consciousness and body-mind. Altogether, without giving it any thought, I say I. But what I refer to by I is a mixture of Atma and Anatma. Ultimately, when you are going to say I am Brahman, that I must be the, the clarified, purified, the result of your inquiry, the Atman itself. The Atman is Brahman. But this mixture, body-mind mixture and Atman mixture is not Brahman ultimately. Ultimately, you have to see the real Brahman is Atman. So you have to difference between Atma and Anatma has to be done. How do you differentiate? You cannot differentiate physically. You can't take pincers and pull the Anatma out of Atma. You can't do that. So, I remember like a dentist, this cartoon in Reader's Digest, I remember. So, you know, teeth are pulled out. So the dentist is sitting, and the, the patient is sitting on the chair, and sometimes the dentist would put a little string to give it a jerk and pull it out. The dentist put a string on the tooth, the stubborn tooth to be pulled out, and the dentist is playing out the string and going out of the door. And then this patient thinks, where is the dentist going with the string? So he goes and peeks, the next, in the cartoon, he peeks in the door like that, and he sees the dentist is attaching the, uh, the thing to the fender of his car. <laughs> so he's going to start the car. <laughs> you can't do that. You can't put a string on Atma or Anatma and then put it, put it to your SUV and pull it out, tug it out. No. It has to be because the mixture, what kind of a mixture is it? It's not a physical mixture. It's a mixture of confusion. They're together and we do not understand them separately. So this understanding has to come. And that is the vichara. So the, the way to separate them is by understanding what is Atma and what is Anatma. What I am and what I am not, that is to be understood. So this is, this is the first step in Advaita Vedanta. Once, but it's not the end. This is the first step. Once you have got the result of this process, the result will be, I am consciousness. I am the witness. I am the unchanging immortal spirit, not body and mind. This will be the result. Now take this result, step two will come. Now you have separated consciousness from matter and energy and all of that from consciousness from, from everything else, the non-conscious. Now the second step has to come where everything that you have separated is again merged back into consciousness to be realized that everything is consciousness or everything is Brahman. Then only Advaita is complete. I am Brahman. Otherwise, right now you think you are a bundle of flesh and blood, this person, this thing, biological creature separated from everybody else. Even after completing the first step, you're still separated from everybody else. I'm as the witness of everything else. That's not Advaita. That's not the end of the process. Um, Sankhya philosophy stops there. But Advaita goes one step forward, asks the question, alright, you are consciousness, but all those things you're conscious of, you are Atma, all those things which are not Atma, Anatma, what is the relationship between 
the non-conscious and the conscious. What is the relationship between anatma and atma? Are they one and the same or are they different? And the result of that next step will be they are one and the same. It is the atma alone which appears as anatma. It is Brahman alone which appears as Jiva, you, Jagat, the universe and Ishwara, God. So that will be the final conclusion. Brahman alone is real. That's the end of the conclusion of Advaita, non-duality is established. So two steps, let's see. From verses 17 to 33, actually a little more than that, up to say um, 40, I would say, 17 to 39, let's say, is the discussion how you are not the body and mind. Atma, Anatma, Vichara. This is the first step of Advaita. First step. The Vichara inquiry into self and not self. Let me summarize what, what Shankaracharya has done there. He has given a series of arguments based on reasoning, based on your experience. What experience? The experience you have right now. He says, take a look at your life. Take a look at what is happening. And then I will show you step by step, you are not the body-mind. You take yourself to be body-mind, but you are the witness of the body-mind. Right now you are taking yourself to be consciousness plus body plus mind. Mind, body, consciousness all together. But I will show you that you are consciousness and you are the witness of the body and mind, but you are not the body and mind. How, do you, how does he do that? He gives, let us take a few of the arguments he gives. Number one, he says, you are always the subject and everything else you experience is the object. You are always the knower, everything else is the known. known. You are the drashta, everything is drishya. Seer and everything else is seen. Look at your experience, is it not true? Think about it. Whatever you experience is an object. But you are not an object, you are the subject. Now look at the body, do you experience it? Yes. I see it, I touch it, I can hear it also, or the stomach rumbling or something, I can hear it. Sometimes you can even smell it, especially as the summer comes closer. So, uh, uh, it is an object. It is an object of all my senses. So it is an object. I am the subject, the body is an object. I am not an object, how can I be the body? The mind, is it an object? Yes. When you feel pain or misery or happiness or desire or joy, you know it. If you know it, those thoughts, they are objects. And you, the knower, are the subject of your mind. Uh, I mean the subject which, or the, or the seer, the witness of your mind. And this is something new because in most literature, the most common sense approach or even in science, in literature, the mind is taken as the subject and the world is taken as the object. But Vedanta says even mind is to be relegated to the status of an object. Why? By your own experience. Take an honest look at your experience. You never thought in that way, that whatever I know is an object. So you know your mind. See, I don't, I don't, that person doesn't know his mind. <laughs> Take a, you, in, that's another meaning. But introspect, you will see the contents of your mind. Mind is also object. So you are the subject. And one consequence of this is, you are never an object of knowledge. Because the pure subject cannot be an object. The moment it becomes an object, it's not you. That's one argument. 
that argument in sanskrit is called drigdrishya viveka seer and seen because of that you are the seer and you cannot be the body mind which are the seen <laughs> second he points out related to this is you as the subject you as the seer you as the knower you must have at least one thing what is that awareness consciousness sentience whatever name you give it i'm using it in a general sense and what you are experiencing that does not have awareness you are consciousness the self is consciousness and uh, the not self anatma is not conscious jada though it may appear to be conscious because it, there is a tricky thing here because it borrows consciousness from you the body appears to be consciousness for practical purpose body and mind are conscious because they are that reflected consciousness you remember chidabhasa that gives it illumination and consciousness it can use the consciousness channel you the consciousness through body mind that's why they appear to be conscious but they are not conscious in themselves you are consciousness so because in sanskrit chit jada first drigdrishya then second chit jada consciousness not consciousness sentience in sentience that is the difference that's why you are not body mind body mind are not sentient they appear to be but you are sentient you are consciousness the third one would be saguna nirguna attributeless and with attribute everything in the world has features attributes properties qualities the chair has a red cover the light is uh, bright uh, the grass is uh, uh, green outside or the trees are green look at them their properties everything has properties even the mind has properties a happy mind sad mind a depressive mind a miserable intelligent these are properties features the world has features by which they are experienced and understood and you deal with it but you the self atma you have no qualities nirguna attributeless you might say just a minute didn't you just say that we are conscious so isn't consciousness a feature of the self no advaita says consciousness is not a property of the self consciousness is the self it's like saying um this necklace is very beautiful it is circular and it has these loops and these little leaves and flowers into it and all of these are features of the necklace and one more feature of the necklace is gold but gold is not a feature of the necklace gold is the reality of the necklace it is gold alone which appears as the necklace it would be wrong to say gold is a feature of the necklace similarly consciousness is not a feature of the soul is not a characteristic of the soul not a quality of the soul it is the soul itself it, it soul means the self it is the self itself so the point here is saguna nirguna quality the world the anatma not self has qualities and attributes the self has is qualityless attributeless nirguna chaitanyam attributeless consciousness or that is what we call pure consciousness that's the third argument again by your experience always see give check mark yes advaita will only point out that's the beauty of advaita if you have difficulty in understanding advaita then you are going about it some you are overcomplicating it advaita is actually very simple and very direct it points out look if you understand what is being pointed out it's obvious 
Then the fourth one will be Nirvikara Savikara. Everything in the world is subject to change. The not-self, Anatma, is subject to change. You, the self, are not subject to change. Look at it. See in the world. No, Swami has changed so much. What has changed? The body. The body is subject to six kinds of change, according to um, the traditional way it is put. Shadvikara. Jayate, it is born. Asti, it comes into existence. Vardhate, it grows. Baby, teenager, young person. Viparinamate, it matures, middle age. Forty, huh? Then, uh, Apakshiyate, it begins to age and degenerate. And then Nashyati, death, destruction. All of them of the body. Not consciousness. Mind also changes, much faster than the body. Every day it changes. All the time it changes. From morning till now, how many times irritated? How many times grinning? How many times frowning? Smiley and frowning and then emoji they call. How many times? So many times. From morning to uh, now, uh, you'll see. Mind has changed so much. It, it wakes up. It sleeps and dreams. It goes into deep sleep. The huge changes in the mind. They're all mind. So, mind changes, body changes. You are not unchanging. Then how can you be the mind-body? Atma and Atma. You are not the mind and body. That was fourth. One more. You can go on. Many, many are there. I know at least uh, like um, about nine or ten differences. But the, let's take the, uh, one more and stop. Ekam um, Anekam. You are one. And everything in the world is many composed of parts. Analyzable into parts. Everything you see in the world. In a deeper sense, um, the technical term would be nirvikalpam savikalpam. You are without any modes. The world has many modes of existence. Savikalpa, with vikalpa. The world, everything in the world has parts. Is compounded. The Buddha put it this way. All compounded things decay. So he is giving two arguments. One is compounded, made of many things, and decay, it changes. He has combined the fourth one and the fifth one together. So the fifth one is, you are nirvikalpam, you are one without parts. And everything in the world, including the body and the mind, they, have, they are analyzable into parts, they are compounded. One and many. Again, experience. Look at your experience and say to it, yes, true. Summarizing, Drik Drishya, because of Drik Drishya, I'll give you only the Sanskrit. You are consciousness, not the body. Because of Chit Jada, you are consciousness, not the body. Because of um, Saguna Nirguna, Nirguna Saguna, you are consciousness, not the body. Because of um, savikara nirvikara. Um, nir, you are nirvikara, the, the consciousness, not the body, uh, um, body mind. Because of um, savikalpa nirvikalpa, ekam anekam, one, many, or with modes and without modes, you are consciousness, not the body mind. Because of these reasons, that will suffice for now. So, because of these reasons, you are the witness consciousness, not the physical body or the subtle mind. They are not you. Though they are there, but they are not you. Now, 
we go to verse number 41. Having completed this, 41 is an interesting verse. It gives you a shock there. Yeah. 41 was Ityatma deha bhagena prapanchasyaiva satyata yatokta tarkashastrena tatah kimpurushathata He says, you know what you have achieved now? You have just proved that, first of all, no Advaita, because it's only multi multiplicity. You are one and then there are so many other things in the world. Second, you have proved that the world is real. How can you separate two things? Only when two things are separate? That means two things are there. If two things are there, the world is, you are not the world. Body, mind are part of the world. That's good. It's an achievement. But what you have also proved is the world is also a real entity apart from you. When you separate two things, two real things then. He says, what good is it? It's no good. What you have done till now. Then why did you do it? Because it's only the first step. Once you have done it, now you must go ahead. You know what is the real example for this? He will give later on pot and clay example. So he says, you take a pot, then you are told the reality is clay. Understand the pot, the clay apart from the pot. Understand. See it as clay, not as pot. You see that it is clay only. So when you see the clay as apart from the pot, that is the first step. But if you stop there, you get into all sorts of muddles. What will happen, you know? When you say that there is a reality behind this universe, a creator of this universe, or in your own case, just like we said, you are an atma apart from body and mind. Immediately the Buddhist will come or a skeptic will come or a scientist will come. Where is this atma? Show. Prove it. There is a, or the religion comes and says there is a God apart from the world which created the universe. Immediately the skeptic will come, atheist will come, Richard Dawkins will come and catch you. Where is this God? Show. Which, which uh, laboratory, which test tube, which, uh, uh, what, uh, large hadron collider, have you, can you prove God in? You cannot. Particle accelerator. You cannot. You know why these huddles come, these, these muddles come? Another kind of big complication arises. Say, for example, in religion, huge problem. That problem of evil. If there is a God who created this universe, omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful, apart from this, then God is responsible for all the problems of the universe, manufacturing defect, <laughs> disease, yeah. cancer, HIV, um, then uh, uh, global warming, that's partly our fault also, <laughs> then, uh, mostly. Then, then um, earthquakes, in Hawaii there's, earth, uh, there's a volcano explosion going on, and ultimately the sun will turn nova and things like that. All manufacturing defect only. From sun turning nova up to our appendix. Manufacturing defect. Then God is to blame. This is called problem of evil. The problem of evil. Why is there suffering in the world? This question will come in any religion throughout the ages till today. Why is there suffering if there is a God? The answer is, you have stopped by separating clay and pot first step. From the Advaita point of view, this is the solution. This is not the answer. That there is something called a pot and something called a clay, which is the cause of the pot. Now if the pot is bad, you can blame the clay. No. They are not two different things. Next step 
you must see that there is no such thing called pot. It is clay and clay only. Where is a thing called pot? What you are calling the thing, the substance, what you are holding, it's clay. In a particular shape, with a name, with a use, which you call pot. Then you realize the pot is not a separate reality apart from the clay. Universe is not a separate reality apart from Brahman. This universe, this body, this mind is not a separate reality apart from you, the consciousness. In fact, it will go on. Boldly Shankaracharya will say, this body, flesh, blood, bone, all sorts of chemicals and everything, this, this messy body, 200 pounds, there's nothing other than pure consciousness. He will go so far as to say that. It will come. It is one reality. Now if you say, now how does that help us? Look at something like problem of evil. Why is there suffering if God is there? If I say God alone is suffering, there is no separate thing which is suffering. Sri Ramakrishna said that. When somebody asked, why do we suffer if God is there? Sri Ramakrishna tried various answers. He said, it is the Leela, the divine play of God. Then that person, Mr. Mukherjee, he, in Calcutta, he, he was not at all satisfied. He said, Tarto Leela Aramra Mori. It's, it's Leela for God, but it's death for us. What is the problem? Sri Ramakrishna says, his immediate answer, but who are you? What he means is, you are none other than Brahman. So all of this is not separate from you. This entire universe which you think you are suffering in this universe because of a separate God. No, no, no. You are the one reality which is, and all of this is appearing in you. It is not a reality other than you. You, but by you I mean consciousness. Satchidananda, not this body-mind. This problem arises if you separate clay and pot. But ultimately you must complete the whole process. Pot is nothing but clay and clay alone is the reality. This universe and jiva are nothing but Brahman. Brahman alone is the reality. Brahma Satyam, Jagat Mitya, Jiva Brahmheva Napara. If you leave the clay and the pot separately, God and world separately, clay and pot separately, Alan, Alan Watts, very humorous, the British philosopher who lived in the Bay Area in the 1950s, 60s, Alan Watts, he says this clay and pot example, if you stop there, he says, if you stop the clay and there's a cause called clay and there is an um, effect called pot, this clay pot theory is actually crackpot theory, he said. <laughs> he calls it a crackpot theory. Unless you complete it, he says, it's one reality, it's not a clay and a pot. So that one is completed next. Shankaracharya starts, he says, from 41 to 89th verse, long thing. He shows that it is one reality. How does he show it? Very quickly. First, he quotes heavily from the Upanishads. No longer, see, methodology has changed. He's not taking your experience and then giving arguments to prove it. Rather, he's using pointers from the Upanishads. And then you see the world like that. But first, you must have completed the first step. Otherwise, it will not make sense. So, pointers from the Upanishads. Um, I think he has quoted four kinds of statements from the Upanishad. One is direct statement. Everything is the Atma. You are Atma consciousness and everything else is also Atma. Sarvam Atma. Biradharanek Upanishad says. Direct quotation from Upanishad. He has used that kind of quotation. 
सेकेंड काइंड ऑफ कोटेशन विच हीज यूज इज इन कठो उपनिषद नेह नानास्ति किंचन देर इज देर आर कोटेशन इन द यूनि इन द उपनिषद विच डिनाय दैट्स मैन हैटन विच डिनाय प्लुरैलिटी डिनाय ड्यूएलिटी नेह नानास्ति किंचन देर इज नो मल्टीप्लिसिटी हियर वॉट्स एवर इट लुक्स डिफरेंट इवन आफ्टर दिस इट विल स्टिल लुक डिफरेंट but you there is an underlying identity or oneness so that's the second kind of quotation which denies multiplicity first is affirms everything is atma second one denies multiplicity third one criticizes duality mrityu samrityum apnoti ya iha naneva pashyati the one who see one who sees multiplicity here duality here will go from death to death it's a criticism it's a criticism you're criticizing duality which means he says one non duality is the reality praising non duality so that kind of quotation is there atatasya bhayam bhavati ya udaram pashyati that means in taittiriya upanishad is said that one who sees the slightest difference here between you and anybody else we see the slightest difference here you will be subject to fear is criticism of dvaita difference and the third and the, and the fourth uh, type of quotation he gives is all duality all multiplicity is based on ignorance which means if multiplicity or duality is based on ignorance then non duality must be knowledge in knowledge non duality in uh, ignorance duality so in different kinds of quotations he has given then um, then the next he gives a barrage of examples a battery of examples to show the oneness of you and the universe like he gives i counted 15 examples so i can repeat it also but 15 distinct examples separate examples 15 examples let me give you some this is from verse number 59 to 74 15 examples all the classic ones you all know it clay pot example as the pot is not separate from the clay universe is not separate from consciousness from brahman um silver and nacre the the um nacre the the seashell sometimes shines like silver though it's not silver so silver is actually as the seashell shines as uh, silver exactly like that brahman sh- shines as the world Bra- world is not different from brahman uh, snake rope you are all masters of the snake and rope example gold and ju- uh, uh, and the jewels gold and the ring of course we all know very familiar with it then mirage and water very familiar with it marumarichika blue sky though the sky appears to be blue it's not really blue though brahman appears to be the world it's not really the world there's no world apart from brahman water and wave again we are very familiar with it these are some examples but there are 15 examples quoted by shankaracharya verses 59 to 74 how is this possible can consciousness appear as a body it seems this solid body here you're saying it's consciousness so he says by agyana ignorance ignorance can make something appear as completely different something totally different and he from verse 75 to 86 agyana yogatah because of agyana ignorance because of that he gives see look at these ex- examples from our daily life um 75 onwards so so for example he says just as a very beautiful example i love this 
as a tree or a forest reflected in a lake. Every bit of that reflected forest in the lake, every bit of it is what? Water. But it looks like trees and shrubs and sky, even birds flying. So many things are happening there. None of it is there. It's just water. Similarly, he says, consciousness appears as a body or a body appears in consciousness. Every bit of it is consciousness, but it looks like a body. Every bit of that lake is water. It looks like a forest. I give that example in Loon Lake, very beautiful lake with the entire forest reflected in it. So Shankaracharya uses that. And then other examples, going in a boat. And this also I've seen when I cross the Ganga River and I suddenly see Belur Mat, the monastery and the temples and the trees, all are beginning to move. Of course they're not moving. I am moving because of the boat. As that motion is transferred onto the unmoving Belur Mat. Similarly, it is the unchanging consciousness which appears as a changing body and mind. Then he gives another example. Um, firebrand, when you whirl a, 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 a coal, a charcoal, glowing charcoal, for example, it looks like a circle. That circle is nothing other than one dot of fire. But because of the movement, it gives an illusion. This entire appearance is of Maya, it's Brahman alone. Because of the presence of ignorance, it looks like that. And he gives so many other examples. Twelve, I counted, twelve examples. How ignorance can make something look totally different. So ignorance makes Brahman look like the world. Especially, he says, makes consciousness look like the body. I think the best example, he has not given that here though. Dream. In dream, you feel you are, you are here in a body, in a particular place, talking with other people. But when you wake up, that body was what? Only your mind. There was no real physical body there. Then, um, 89th verse to 99th verse, he takes up the subject of Jivan Mukti and Prarabdha Karma. I hope you remember, we had a long discussion of, with uh, 10 verses, that um, when you are liberated, how is it that you still have the body? The traditional answer is, that upon liberation all your karmas are destroyed, you will never be reborn, but this body will continue as long as the particular karma which started this body keeps, keeps, keeps on giving results. And examples are given, like the fan, if I switch it off, there is no more electricity being supplied, but still it will go around two or three times before stopping, because the inertia of past motion is upon it. Similarly, even when all karmas are wiped out by enlightenment, you will never be born again, but until this particular body stops, it will, it will go on in the body. Or another example was, is given of the arrow. The archer is shooting arrows. And uh, if he decides not to shoot anymore, he can drop the arrows in the quiver. He can even drop the arrow which is setting on the bow. But the one which is released is going towards the target. So, prarabdha karma, that karma which is giving its results now, this will continue even if you are enlightened. This body will continue till the end of that karma. That's the traditional uh, answer. Shankaracharya, if you remember, he denies it. He said, for an enlightened person, there is no prarabdha at all. Then why is this confusion arising? Because, what do you consider the enlightened person to be? Normally, we consider the enlightened person to be that body of the enlightened person. Who is Vivekananda? He said, why this? Vivekananda will say, no. Vivekananda would say, honestly, I am Brahman, not this thing. Ramakrishna, this, 
He would say no. He would always refer to him, this thing as this. So, the enlightened person, if you, if you understand the enlightened person in truth as Brahman, what prarabdha karma does Brahman have? But if you understand as most people do, the enlightened person as that particular body-mind, that's a way of looking at it, then you have to take into account prarabdha karma. So both explanations are good. The real explanation is that there is no prarabdha karma. Then you come to 100 verse, where Shankaracharya gives 15 practices to make you steady in this knowledge, to make it deep and permanent. So the 15 practices are yama and niyama, the, the moral uh, prerequisites, tyaga, uh, renunciation, maunam, silence, desha, place, auspicious place, kala, auspicious time, asanam, the, the how to sit, mulabandha, uh, the locks, yogic locks, deha samyam, the posture of the body, drikstiti, where to keep your eyes, uh, prana sangyamanam, uh, control of the breath, pratyahara, withdrawal of the senses, then um, dharana, focus, dhyanam, meditation, and samadhi, the final absorption. These are all yogic terms. But then Shankaracharya smoothly proceeds in the next 24 verses up to 134. Yes, 100 to 134. He proceeds to completely change the meaning. Each term is taken up and shown that it takes you to that I am Brahman. For example, I just gave that example, breathing in, holding the breath, releasing the breath. He says, releasing the breath means, world is an appearance. Breathing in means, I am Satchidananda. Holding the breath means, stay there, I am Satchidananda. So you use only the shell of the practice to point to the fact that you are Brahman. And he points out the obstacles that will come in the practice of of meditation that also he points out and uh, then also he encourages us to practice these 15 steps assiduously sincerely intensively for a long period of time then 135 to 39 he points out the essential method of Vedanta what was happening in the whole book and what was the method of Vedanta he points out in 135 yes Karye karanata yata, karane nahi karyata, karanatvam tato gachet, karya bhave vicharata. He says, inquire in this way. What is the inquiry? First, take something as an effect, see its cause. Then realize the effect has no existence apart from the cause. If the effect has no existence, then the cause is not really a cause, then this reality alone remains. What does that mean? He says, next verse, take the example of pot and clay. Clay pot example. So first, the pot is an effect. The clay is the cause. Then next you realize, the pot is through and through clay. There is no thing called a pot. And that means if the effect is not there, pot is not there, how can you call the clay cause? What is it a cause of? It's not really a cause. If clay is not really a cause, then clay alone remains. But here, clay does not alone remain. What he says Take the world first, effect, call Brahman the cause, then you see the world is through and through Brahman, and then, uh, that means if there is no Brahm world, then Brahman is not a cause. If Brahman is not a cause, then what happens? He says, avashishtam bhavet munihi. 
you remain. You want you would like to say the Brahman alone remains then, just like the clay. No, you alone remain. So that is the methodology. What was done in the whole of the book or the bulk of the book. But it must be completed. That second step. Uh, otherwise, there are. You might say, all oh, this is nice philosophy. Practically, is there any um, uh, consequence? Big consequences there. Huge consequence. I get letters, emails, almost uh, daily. This recently somebody wrote that I am. I understand. I am the witness consciousness apart from body and mind. But then, what is the point of life? I am separated from everybody else. I feel apathy. I don't feel any interest in anything. They are all not me. They are all separate from me. Then what do I do now? No, they are not separate from you. You are the universe. If you want to do anything, every good cause is your cause. Everybody's suffering is your suffering. How can you sit still? All the spiritual, these service works of the Ramakrishna order, they were inspired by this feeling of oneness. Akhandranji prayed, let me see God in all human beings. The moment he, said, he saw that, he wanted to run away to the Himalayas and meditate for the rest of his life. When he saw the people suffering, um, you know, that little girl who was sitting and weeping, there was a famine, everybody, she was reduced to a skeleton. And then he asked why, he said, the little girl, the little Muslim girl, she said that the entire position of her family is the one pot, oh, the pot again. <laughs> and I broke the pot by mistake. Now if I go home, my mother will beat me. And so she's sitting there and crying. And Nakhandanji could not bear it anymore, this emaciated, starving little child and crying because she is going to be beaten for that little pot which is broken now. So he went and whatever little money he had, he tried to buy a he bought a pot for her. But then he was surrounded by children, starving children asking him for, for food. And from there onwards he settled down there itself and started that ashram and you know, spent the rest of his life in service of that same Brahman in everybody. He did not say, I am the witness consciousness, I am Atma, all this is Anatma. Uh, everybody else and pots and everything are all Anatma, I don't care if the pot is broken. He didn't say that. How can he say it when it's me? Uh, I feel the pains and sufferings of this body and I work so hard to take care of it and provide it with what it needs. If like that, I am identified with everybody. How can I say I have nothing to do, I am bored? So if you don't complete the process, you will be stranded in that magnificent isolation. Mm -hmm. Like a star in the dark, darkness of space, you shine alone in your own splendor. And nothing else is there. That's also a particular state. Sankhya philosophy speaks about it. German philosopher Leibniz, he thought about it. He stopped there. It's called Leibniz's monad. And ultimately we are monads. Bits of consciousness, all separated from each other. But this is a kind of stark and uh, scary and s sad kind of outlook on life. But Advaita is not that. If you stop there, clay and separate the pot from the clay, Alan Watts said, crackpot theory. That's why you are suffering. So it is one reality. And then, 139th verse, very nice. He sums up this whole method. Karyehi karanam pashyet Paschat karyam visarjayet, karanatvam tato gachet, avashishtam bhavet munihi. First see, in the effect see the cause. Then dismiss the effect. Then the causality of the cause is lost. 
So what remains? Brahman itself? No, he says you remain. Avashishtam Bhavet Muni. You, the pure consciousness, remains. So this is the conclusion of, of um, Vedanta. And then he encourages us to seriously practice it continuously. 140 to 44, urging us to practice continuously. And concludes by saying, do not neglect the other practices. Uh, the lower yoga is very useful. Devotion to God, devotion to Guru are extremely important. Those who have that will progress and find it easy to realize all of this in this very life. So that is the conclusion. Now with a peace chant, I will end. I pray to Sri Ramakrishna, Holy Mother, Swamiji here, that by their blessings, as Shankaracharya said, Guru Devata Bhaktanam, by the blessings of Guru and God, may we all realize this grand culmination of human life, this enlightenment in this very life itself. Let us make our lives blessed and by this be a blessing unto humanity. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu